Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. If there's anything better than getting a few of your favorite things from McDonald's, it's getting a few of your favorite things from McDonald's for less in the McDonald's app. Mm. Delicious. Order in the McDonald's app today. Right now, only in the app. Enjoy a breakfast sandwich for just $1, like a sausage McMuffin with egg. Offer valid one time per day from 429 to 512.24 at participating McDonald's. Must opt into rewards. This show is brought to you by Third Love. Third Love is one of the sponsors that I was a customer of before they started sponsoring the show. They make beautiful bras. Uh, my favorite, as I have said before, is one of the racer backs that has lace in the back, so you know you're not afraid of it showing. Um, but what I really like about Third Love is that they've kind of perfected the online measurement process. Uh, you find your fit in 60 seconds. Um, they sort of go through a quiz, and they don't just ask you about the size of your ladies, uh, but also the shape, because breast shape matters when you're finding a good fit. You may not have known that. And you can do all this in the privacy of your own home. You don't have to brave any store. You don't have to, to brave anybody's cold hands. And they have an amazing array of sizes, cups from A through H, band sizes up to 48, and they have half sizes, which I believe is unique to Third Love because 50% of women fall between sizes. It is the most comfortable bra you'll ever own. Uh, they also have tagless labels. There's nothing you know, itching in the back. And, and the straps don't slip. They're really kind of like uh, they have a cool kind of design to them too. Even the ones that you may not actually want to show are pretty enough to show. And they guarantee a perfect fit. Returns and exchanges are free and easy. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they are offering my listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash friends to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first order. That's thirdlove.com slash friends for 15% off today. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These, the show where we talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us. And just to be totally candid, this week's show is, uh, there's not a whole lot of difference happening. This show, even for all of the whiteness that this show dives into, is really, really white. Um, my first guest is Robert Withnow. He is a professor of sociology at Princeton, and he's the author of a book called The Left Behind, Decline and Rage in Rural America. He is the first guest, and we will talk about his findings about rural America, where they do and don't intersect with some of the uh, pith helmet journalism that was done. We will talk about uh, his findings about rural America and where what he found does and doesn't intersect with the, you know, venturing into the great middle of the country that a lot of journalists did in the wake of the 2016 election. And then our second segment is a response to a listener question. And it's a listener question having to do with one's own whiteness 
and uh, it's a bunch of white people talking about whiteness, which, spoiler alert, that's going to be part of the process if one is interested in repairing the injustices wrought by systemic racism, white people kind of tending to our own is going to have to happen. It's not always comfortable. The conversation that we have about the listener question isn't necessarily comfortable, but you guys are pros. You'll get through it. First up, of course, is Robert with now. So welcome to the show. Thank you. So, you know, one of the most interesting things to me about your book is that you actually did all the research for it before before it was cool. You know, we we've we had this like boom of interest in rural America, but but you've been looking at rural America since before people decided we didn't know anything about it. Yeah, that's right. I've been thinking about rural America for Oh, 10 or 12 years, at least in terms of the research that I started doing. And, um, of course, this has a biographical aspect of it for me as well, because I, I grew up in rural America. I grew up in a, in a small town in the Midwest. So it was something that was kind of a backburner interest for me for a long time, and I guess what happened was, being in the social sciences, we offer courses, popular courses, routinely on urban America, uh, but we hardly ever focus much attention on small towns and rural people. So I thought, well, you know, it's not the popular thing to do, but it interests me, so I'll I'll take a look. And here now it's become a, a pretty popular thing to do. Uh, you were, I assume, kind of in the in the finished up with your research, but probably starting the book at the time of the 2016 election. Is that timing about right? That's right. I had I had finished the research 2014, 2015, something like that. Well, I'm curious. I mean, we're talking about the process here because, you know, um, after Trump was elected, kind of during, but definitely after, there was this boomlet of of explainers, right? And I just wonder, as someone who's been looking at this since, again, before it was cool, um, when that started, when you started to see popular news coverage, kind of, you know, people put on their pith helmets and go to the five and dime or whatever, it always felt, I mean, I I actually should say I'm from the heartland myself, too. Uh, I grew up mostly in Texas, but went to high school in Nebraska. So um, I've seen... Like I can talk about what I think of these articles that pe- when reporters from the coasts like go and you know uh, get their Indiana Jones gear together and 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 travel to the Midwest. But I wonder what your reaction was when those star- articles started appearing. Yeah, my reaction was mixed. You know, on the one hand, I was pleased to see that there were people, that there were journalists and pollsters who were paying attention to this kind of understudied part of America. Um, The criticisms I had, as I recall, were the following. The the pollsters, first of all, and I, I should say, I'm I'm trained as a survey researcher. I I was doing research for for 30 years. I I haven't done it recently, but I understand 
surveys and polls and so forth. So I was I was interested when articles would come out, you know, suggesting that uh, first of all that rural Americans were perhaps responsible for the outcome of the 2016 election and then perhaps going a little bit further and saying, well, you know, it's it's because there aren't any jobs in rural America or there are economic problems or people have old-fashioned values, whatever it might be. Um, and we can talk more about that, but that my reaction to that as somebody who has done that kind of research was, you know, well, this is interesting, but it it misses a lot. It, 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 it misses a lot of what I saw and heard from talking to people, especially the diverse views, you know, so that people in one town or people in a larger town or a smaller town or people in the Midwest uh, as opposed to New England would, would be talking in quite different ways. And uh, the polls, of, of course, don't tap into things in that much depth. On the journalistic side, what struck me there has been, and this continues to be the case, that it's it's really valuable to have the smart, frontline, top-notch journalists, you know, digging into, you know, what's going on in small towns and talking to cotton farmers or whoever it might be. Um, the shortcoming is partly that they don't spend much time there, uh, but also their questions are often driven by what the what 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 the latest poll has shown or what the latest election has shown. So the questions, and the narratives typically are, well, you know, we're trying to understand why somebody in this place voted for whoever they voted for. And so we go out and ask them and, and, and then we do a little bit of background. But it kind of gives you the impression that all that people think about in those communities is the election or that their lives are really oriented day by day toward politics, and, you know, that's not the case. Um, of course, politics are important, and people follow the news, uh, just like those of us who live in cities and suburbs do. Um, but what I was trying to do, because, you know, frankly, the research I was I was doing, I, I had no idea that we were going to be thinking about the Trump phenomenon. I was I was simply interested in trying to listen to people, trying to figure out what they value, um, how they talked about their communities, what they liked, what they didn't like, what daily life was for them. And so if anything, I was, I was trying to do, I, I guess, the sort of background research that maybe helps by way of, of background, of, of kind of filling out the story uh, of of what's going on in rural America, and and we sort you sort of got into it there, but I'm curious, like, what are the big things that the parachute journalists missed if if they when they took their you know 
Well, I think trips to. I think the biggest thing they miss, and this this is also true of of the polling and of some of the census data. The biggest thing is is that people actually live in communities, and the community is very important to them. They are communal peoples, social people. And so what's easy to miss about that is when you go and talk to an individual and you say, you know, who'd you vote for and and why'd you vote and how are you feeling about how you voted now and, you know, have you lost your job or is your family in trouble? That makes it sound like everybody is either an isolated individual or perhaps even a self-interested individual. And, you know, maybe it was my bias as a sociologist, but from talking to people and and then spending time, you know, visiting a lot of small towns, a lot of rural communities, what struck me was how much people's identity as individuals is defined by their community and how important that is you know and in a lot of cases it's something that 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 they that they talk about openly you know they'll they'll say i really love my town or i'm worried about my town or you know whatever that might be and there's also a subliminal aspect to that 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 you know when you're when you're immersed in the frog pond you don't necessarily realize the extent to which you are shaped by the frog pond and so you know we we would hear people in interviews you know we'd ask them a question thinking that we were going to get their opinion and in the process they would report you know what we technically call reported speech they would say well you know i was just talking to my na- my neighbor the other day and we were talking about this or i was i was just at church last sunday and got into a conversation and you know so it was it was clear that their attitudes and opinions reflected the community and you know that's that that's not unique to small towns we you know are influenced by our neighborhoods wherever we live but in addition to that there was this sense of commitment and in the book I talk about it as as moral community the sense of moral obligation that living here in this place we have a responsibility to do what we can to be a good citizen be a good neighbor, participate in whatever voluntary organizations there may be, and do the best we can, sometimes falling short, often falling short, but doing the best we can to make the community as good as it can be. One thing that kind of bothered me when I was reading the book is that there is a, a lot of evidence for, for the kind of thinking you're talking about, people being very connected to their communities, um, getting a sense of morality from their communities. But 
I did keep thinking to myself, that's just true of communities. Like, what makes it specific to rural communities? You know, I'm real, you know, connected to my community here in Minneapolis. Um, so, you know, how do they, what is, what is the distinguishing, you know, feature of a rural person's moral community versus someone who's not living in a rural area? It is more, I mean, I'll say insular or isolated. That has a kind of pejorative connotation. But it is more circumscribed mm. in terms of who you know. And there, therefore, if you happen to be talking to somebody on the sidewalk who you just run into, maybe they're your neighbor, you know them casually, but it's pretty likely that they also know people who you know. It's, it's a dense social network, and it is geographically located. Okay, so what's, what's different about that from living in an urban neighborhood? Because some of that certainly takes place in an urban neighborhood as well. The difference is for most people in cities and suburbs, the range of networks, the geographic range of your social networks is more dispersed. It's more likely that you don't work in your neighborhood. Mm -hmm. You work someplace else and you commute or you, you drive to someplace else. So your friends at work are not the people you know in your neighborhood. For churches and synagogues, increasingly the studies show that people also commute outside their neighborhood for those associations. You may well be sending your children to a school that is not in the immediate neighborhood, so your kids' friends aren't necessarily in your neighborhood. So what that means, and then of, and of course all of this is complicated for everybody by the fact that increasingly our, our friends are virtual friends that mm -hmm. we know through Facebook and email and, and so forth. But to the extent that you have real face-to-face -face contact in a small community that's much more likely to be geographically defined than it is for the dispersed contacts that we have in other kinds of communities. You talk about this a little in the book, and I'm, I, I'm just going to try to draw it out a little bit, which is that I think the sort of psychological effect of that uh, intimacy, we can call it, physical proximity, uh, and that sense of everyone knowing each other, is a sense that everyone sort of agrees on things, right? Like that we all kind of think the same way about the world. Um, that, uh, you know, the general impression of, of, our, of ourselves is, is shared. Do, do you kind of know what I mean? Like I feel like there's definitely a sense of, you could also just call it a sense of us, right? Yes. That everyone who I know in this community, like we are all an us, right? Yes. 
which can, which leads to <laughs> there's a them, right? That's right. Yes. And and you know the the subtitle of your book is decline and rage in rural America. Uh, I would say that's a little that, that seems a little hyperbolic for the stuff you actually have in the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it's true. <laughs> um, but to the extent that there is rage, it is definitely. Um, I mean, this is you know. Again, if you've been paying attention since the election, you, it's not a headline, but you document this as pre-election. There's definitely a simmering sense of anger at the outside, right, at the them, and yes. an assumption that they are different than us, which is the part that I find fascinating. That, right. that that they they don't assume that the rest of the world is like them. They have they have very very intense feelings like we are us, and then there's this other. Right. Yes, there is this sense of of we-ness. As people over and over and over again would say, well, you know, what we like here is that everybody's all alike. Um, we're all the same. We're all in it together. We know everybody, and we sort of think the same way. And what I tried to do, in, even in the interviews and in the book, was to push that and, you know, say, well, clearly that's not the case because, you know, even if you live in a town of only a thousand people, you don't really know everybody. You can't possibly. And it's also true because we found it when we talked to people and asked them candidly what they thought that, it, that they don't all think the same. So there's that kind of public gloss where people like to say, yeah, we, we're all the same and, and we all get along um, because it's, it's difficult to acknowledge publicly the disagreements. I try to mention some of those in, in the book. Yeah, on, on the one hand, you know, some of the disagreements, let's say, that wound up splitting church congregation so that people, you know, who still had to live in the same neighborhood and eat at the same cafe wouldn't speak to one another. You know, so there are those, those kind of disagreements. There's also the difficulties that people who knew they were in the minority on certain policy issues felt, uh, the difficulty in feeling that they couldn't express themselves. Um, this came up especially on the topic of abortion and the topic of homosexuality and marriage equality, you know, where people who knew they lived in a very conservative community but didn't share those opinions kept quiet yeah. about it. Or they you know, talked on the phone to, to somebody who shared their views but didn't live in the community. So that meant that it seemed like everybody believed the same way to a greater extent than was actually true. So that that's on the kind of us yeah. side of, of the equation. Yeah, then on I, the, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say there's sort of the both sides to me like have interesting fictions to them, right? Like you pointed at one, which is that they're not actually all the same. The us is not actually kind of as congruent as people seem to think it is, right? That right. there is a diversity of opinion and of people that 
both people in rural America and people who aren't in rural America seem to think about rural America. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, and what was interesting to me, you mentioned uh, marriage equality, and one of the sort of interesting kind of mini case studies in the book is in those areas you, you document in those areas where people are forced to kind of reckon with marriage equality because the church decided to have a, a forum because it became up in national politics, that those differences of opinion came out and some people wound up changing their minds. That's right. You know, it's sort of, it, I was like, part of me was like listening to this and I was like, you guys should talk more. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. You know, like... Because there's just this assumption that we all agree was actually covering up some pretty not just serious disagreements, but opportunities for coming together in real in in reality. Exactly. Yeah. And I wonder. I mean, I feel like you see that kind of played out in other areas too. Like when a community, for instance, I mean, you see this occasionally in newspapers. Like when a community that's mostly white. Um, and it voted for Trump, and where people say things like "build the wall," but when having when they are faced with a one of their own being deported, well, then, oh, <laughs> you know, maybe we should actually have a conversation about this. But the thing that I wanted to get to is the other side too, which is the them part, where I feel like, again, maybe that blanket feeling of us versus them, the them is not that. Much as the us, the, those people in the us are not all that alike, I wonder if the them is all, is, is all that different. Does that make sense? It, it does. Yeah, the complications, as people talked about the, the them, the, the others, um, came through partly in the fact that even though People lived in small places and maybe had lived there all their lives. Um, they still had friends and family who lived elsewhere. So some of it was, you know, and again, it kind of put a negative connotation on it that I don't really think is fair. But some some of it was kind of making the best out of a bad situation. You're saying, oh, yeah, I know people who live in cities, and I would never live in a, in a city. You know, I you know, can't breathe there, and I can't think, and there's traffic, and there's noise, and I get my way lost, and, you know, all, all of those things. Whereas, in fact, you know, they had friends who lived in cities, and they understood that those people were happy. And, you know, so it wasn't just a blanket condemnation of city people and by the same token and and this is this is harder but with respect to race and ethnicity because yes the vast majority of people in rural america are white anglo um, but hardly any of these communities are 100% white anglo and so yeah, we we also you know found examples like like the one you mentioned of people thinking, oh yeah, you know there needs to be a border wall, or oh yeah, you know we don't think much of policies that somehow affect urban people, by which we mean African Americans in cities or whatever. But within the community, people that they knew the 
Hispanic family that lived down the block and that they didn't know very well, maybe, but was part of the community or the occasional Muslim family that that had moved in and or the, I don't know, whatever Korean family that had the local restaurant, you know, whatever it might be. Um, again, it was, a, it was a matter of people having to negotiate the boundaries as to who was in and who was out. And doing that, yeah, with a lot of stereotypes, a lot of kind of categorical baggage that was partly media-driven and politics-driven, but at the same time having to negotiate that on a local basis and often on a personal basis came through with respect to attitudes about who was the deserving poor and who wasn't or attitudes about uh, gay people or you know occasionally attitudes about people of of other religions and races um, so that's all to say that that them was complicated where the anger got focused mm, I know where we're going <laughs> yeah yeah was was primarily Washington yeah um, yeah and you know that I don't imagine that that's totally gone away. I don't imagine people are, oh, well, yeah, you know, we have a Republican administration now, we're happy. Because it had been simmering for a very long, long time. We started this research during during the Bush administration, and people were kind of angry at the Bush administration, too. Um, so the, the anger toward Washington partly was just, uh, just symbolic. You know, it was partly, you know, who can we identify to to blame and who can we say doesn't understand us, doesn't care about us, and yet bothers us, we disagree with them. So that was why so often the harshest comments came out with respect to politics. Yeah. It, you know, a few different thoughts on that. One is um, it's, it's easy to scapegoat Washington because though you may wind up having a gay person in your family you may wind up being friends with the Hispanic, you know, uh, family next door. Um, you, you, your kids might go to school with some people of different religions. You don't meet a Washington, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. there's not like a representative. There's not. There's literally representatives of Washington, right? But there, there are always other. Like, because your congressman is fine, your governor is okay. You're never going to meet the bad Washington people and get a chance to like think, oh, you know what? Maybe they're okay. Washington is always an other, right? Yes. It's always yes. going to be far away. Mm-hmm. And then the other thought I had about that was I feel like Fox News is a huge unnamed player in this book. Yes. <laughs> no, <laughs> you, this is you, correct. <laughs> you you mentioned it a couple times, but but yeah, please like tell, I think that that definitely plays a role in this demonization of Washington. Oh, it definitely does. Yeah, I mean, you would you would find um, you know people in interviews uh, quoting something explicitly that they had 
heard on Fox News, oh, well, you know, we were just listening to something on Fox News, and they said, you know, you'd have that. Or, more commonly, you'd have people saying something, you know, giving giving an interpretation of something political that sounded very much like a script that they had picked up on Fox News. So, so there was that, too. And then, you know, sometimes, and, you know, this goes to um, some of the firsthand interviews and observations traveling around that I did. You know, you'd be sitting at McDonald's or some someplace um, talking to people, and, of course, Fox News was on in the background, so you just, you just knew that <laughs> that was partly, you know, what, what was shaping people's views. So, yeah, that's, yeah, ab- absolutely, and... Yeah, I mean, a whole book could probably has been written about that. <laughs> well, it, it it kept coming up for me because this insistence that your um, interviewees, I don't know, subjects, um, uh, had that that Washington was so different and that other people were so different, and I kept thinking that like they're getting this idea from somewhere, you know, something yeah. is reinforcing their belief that Washington is out to get them. Right. And and it's not – it's probably not the Des Moines Register. You know? <laughs> probably not. <laughs> That's right. And yet they feel really strongly about it. Like, for instance, I, I had to roll my eyes a little bit because I'm sure, as you know, um, the way that uh, tax dollars are distributed in this country, rural America is subsidized mm-hmm. in some ways by urban America. And yet the people that you talked to were so insistent that they were the ones being bled dry. Right. And I think I know where they got that idea. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. Did you, did, you, did you ever find yourself wanting to kind of push back on that kind of thing? Like, if- yes. Yeah. And, and, uh, and we did. Uh, when, I, when I say we, I'm also talking about the interviews that my research team was was doing you know we we practiced you know just trying to listen and accept what we heard um, but one of the things that we've learned and you know we've been doing this kind of research or I have for many years is that at least toward the end of an interview or a section of an interview uh, you do learn more by explicitly pushing back and and saying, well, for instance, yeah, you've been talking in glowing terms about your community, but, you know, frankly, it seems like things aren't going so well. You know, what about that? Or um, we were talking in some of these interviews about the Tea Party and fiscal conservatism and... Okay, so yeah, but what do you what do you really think about that? Do you do you agree with that or not? And and this again was where people were, you know, showing that um, yes, they might they might well have voted for the Tea Party candidate, but they also wanted to distance themselves from the category and kind of show no, you know, we're th- we're thinking about it a little bit differently, 
And on the government subsidies, um, this probably came out most explicitly in talking to farmers since they were pretty much all getting crop subsidies or crop insurance of, of one kind or another. And I didn't go into it very much in this book because I wrote a separate book entirely about farmers. And there, there, there was just a lot of frank discussion that, you know, yes, yes, we understand we're being subsidized. Yes, we understand that this is important. We agree. We'd hate for it to go away. On the other hand, you know, we don't like, as you know, understandably, we don't like some of the rules and regulations that that go with it. In the case of townspeople, this comes up a little bit in in the book. It was the town managers across the board who were more thoughtful, it seemed to me, than the elected officials. <laughs> the, you know, the town managers, you know, were usually professionals, and they were. Uh, having to, you know, raise grant money and, and so forth. And so I, I think I actually included in in the book one case where the town manager is saying, you know, we just wish some of some of these people who are always griping about, uh, about Washington would be quiet, you know, because it makes it harder for us to apply for the, the grants that we want and think we need. So Ritual is a vitamin you might have seen online on Instagram. They're kind of very Instagram friendly because the actual pill itself is really cool. It's see-through. The packaging and design are totally snap-worthy. And what you can't see on Instagram is that they're minty, which is kind of genius. I don't know why anyone didn't think of that before. Um, They have a little minty scent. They taste just a tiny bit minty. They're a joy to take. They are vegan, sugar-free, gluten-free, and allergen-free. They are made in the USA without synthetic fillers or colors. And their delayed release capsule bypasses the stomach to help present and their delayed release capsule bypasses the stomach. I mean, I don't think they actually mean it literally bypasses the stomach because everything goes through the stomach. But in any case, because of the delayed release, uh, you don't get kind of nauseous after you take them. And the product for women fills in the gap with the diet, with the best sourced ingredients. It is subscription-based, so you never run out. There's never a gap in nutrition levels. It's only $30 a month. It's delivered straight to your door. If you decide you want to take some time off from Ritual or you just forget some so you don't need another bottle right away, you can snooze your order. 95% of women do not get the vitamins and minerals they need on a daily basis, and Ritual was created as a smarter vitamin with those nine essential ingredients that women lack the most. I can tell you my experience with Ritual, besides being a joy to take in the morning because of the minty freshness, I'm not going to like go all uh, direct mail advertising on you and tell you it changed my life completely, but um, I feel better and my hair and nails are stronger. I've definitely noticed that. And I just know that I'm taking what I need to take. And I always remember to take it because, you know, it's pretty. So choose clean ingredients backed by science. Sign up right now at ritual.com slash friends. Again, that's ritual.com slash friends. Framebridge. Framebridge is yet another sponsor that I was using before they sponsored the show. They make it easy and affordable to frame your favorite things from art prints and posters to travel photos sitting on your phone. 
here is how it works. You go to framebridge.com and you upload your photo. Or if that's not the kind of thing you want framed, you can get a package delivered to your door that you put your frameable thing in and then you send it to them. But I want to emphasize the printing the the photos off your phone thing because I have come to realize it's like the perfect thank you gift. Um, if because people are you oh you're taking Instagram photos you know with your pals when you go out and do something, um, commemorate it with something besides an online album. Just get one of those really cool Instagram photos framed. The prices start at thirty nine dollars, and all shipping is free. My listeners will get fifteen percent off their first order. If they do this, you can go to framebridge.com and use the code friends for it. Uh, again, I think it's just a really cool way to commemorate whatever it is that you last did with your pals. Maybe it wasn't a special occasion. Maybe it was just out for dinner. Maybe you went to a museum exhibit. But if it was important enough to take a picture and post it, then maybe it's important enough just to let your friends know that you want to remember it. So framebridge.com get started today frame photos or send the perfect gift for weddings birthdays and special events use the promo code friends and you will save an additional 15 percent off your first order so again framebridge.com promo code friends so we covered the fact that most of your interviews um all of your interviews i guess uh, took place before the 2016 election did you see trump coming no no, no, not in a million years. <laughs> I um, was um, I was certainly prepared to expect that a large percentage of the people we talked to would in the next election vote for whoever the Republican candidate was. And... And that was easy to to foresee because, you know, frankly, the majority of rural people do live in the Midwest, in West or the South. They, they live in red states, um, and so they were they'd been Republican for a long time. Um, I was I was I was more interested, I guess in how they might come out in local and statewide elections. Because um, I, you know, I, I mean, I frankly didn't, couldn't anticipate exactly who the presidential candidates would be. But I was interested because, because some of the, the midterm elections had happened, some of the gubernatorial elections had happened. And there what what struck me, I, I think I also say this in the book, was that even in these dyed-in-the-wool red communities, there was a lot of back-and-forth action in the primaries. And the primaries in some of these areas were really being hotly contested. And there it was, it, it, it was anybody's guess, you know, as as to just kind of the the local dynamics, you know, whether it was one community that happened to be suffering more than the next community over, or they happened to have gotten fed up because they felt that their community had had been left out for some reason, um, or, you know, also grassroots mobilization 
really mattered. Uh, you know, so sometimes if they were a small rural community and they were close enough to a, a metropolitan community where there was a lot of Tea Party activity or conservative Republican activity going on, a large enough population to have rallies, people were absorbed into that. And then, of course, the other mobilizing factor was that a, a lot of these communities for a very long time had been very actively mobilized by pro-life groups. Yeah. And so that then was a basis you know, on which to build other arguments against marriage equality or against immigration or for fiscal conservatism or whatever it might be. Um, so to, to kind of bring that to a, to a point, yeah, there were, there were certainly some of these smaller communities that could have imaginably uh, swung pretty much toward whoever the Democratic candidate might have been, but a lot of them, it was just pretty certain that they would vote Republican, whoever that candidate was. I think um, the legacy of the pro-life movement is one of the things in your book that might surprise some people, that that is the kind of political uh, crucible that a lot of politics in small towns was formed by. And you're right, like that that laid the groundwork for all of the conservative movements after it, even if on, in some ways, for some people, not all of them are necessarily congruent. You know, it doesn't necessarily follow that you are fiscally conservative just because you're pro-life, right? Like, well, it, today it does, <laughs> but that hasn't, <laughs> those two ideas don't necessarily naturally go together. Um, but I do wonder if, if we're keeping that in mind, I, I don't want to ask you to prognosticate too much since you admit you didn't see Trump, Trump coming, but <laughs> there does seem to be a pretty... Um, deep divide here, right? Um, that us versus them mentality uh, is reinscribed over and over um, by these people, by to a certain extent media coverage, um, and then by a certain extent the media that they consume. Do you think that divide will be bridged? Do you think that things can change? Or do you think that this is just a divide that is going to be, you know, it's going to exist in, until there aren't rural Americas anymore? I mean, you know, I know it's not exactly possible, although I, I've, I read just recently that soon we won't need farmers to drive tractors anymore. Right. So. Well, it's a big question. I vacillate between pessimism and optimism on that question of, of the divide and whether it can be bridged or surpassed in, in some fashion. A few years ago, I thought it probably could be overcome or, or that it would just be put in the past somehow. I've spent a lot of my career writing about religion, uh, the the religious right and, and so forth. And there was 
an argument, as as you know, that as Pat Robertson, Jerry Falwell, and a few others kind of faded from the scene, that, that maybe things were changing. And and from some of the interviews I was already doing back ten or twelve years ago, I was thinking, yeah, there is there is a middle ground. People are, you know, as as you talk to them privately about abortion or marriage equality or whatever it might be, um, there were nuances coming out. And so I thought, well, yeah, I can, I, I can imagine things changing. And so I started to entertain the thought, which I'm still entertaining, what would the situation be like if Roe does get overturned? Hmm. Is that just going to make, you know, people who are so concerned about Roe happy? And so they'll, you know, kind of, you know, retreat back and start thinking about other things. And and so, you know, despite the horrific consequences that it's likely to have, maybe that would change the dynamic. At this point, I don't think I'm optimistic about that in, in other words, I, I, I tend to think that the divide has been so deepened, um, not just attitudinally, but structurally. Thinking about gerrymandering mm-hmm. and thinking about some of the changes having to do with campaign finances and and all of that. That. You know, I I have to imagine that the that the divide is is going to continue. Now, will it will it will it still be as much between as it seems to be now between rural America and urban America? Well, that I that I don't know. I I I think it is the case that a lot of people in agricultural America at least, are having some second thoughts, and, and some of the recent polling uh, you know, suggests that, that with the discussion about tariffs, mm-hmm. especially, uh, you know, people are thinking, hmm, you know, maybe, maybe at least in terms of our economic interest, um, you know, maybe we need to start rethinking where we've been politically. Yeah, I think in some ways, um, my thought is that it might have to get worse before it gets better. And I think this is a little, little uh, along the lines of what you said, like, what if Roe does get overturned? Um, if things get bad enough, you know, will that will one 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 future path is that the conversations that that say happened around marriage equality happen around immigration or happen around, you know, religious freedom or happen around happen around abortion access and people come to realize like, oh, there's more difference of opinion in my little town than I realized and also maybe the people who I disagree with aren't evil, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But the other way that that happens is that uh, things change in those regards, but it happens so slowly there's no breaking point at which we have to have a conversation. Right. You know. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I did an interview with a pastor of a rural congregation in Wisconsin, and 
he's very protective of, of his flock. And he really bristled a lot about any accusations of, of racism. And kind of one of the places we kind of got to was talking about, um, you know, if, if, if people were to get rounded up, you know, like no one's going to let that happen, right? If they start rounding up the brown people, no one's going to let that happen. And I started, but my fear is that if we, it comes to that, it's not going to be the first thing on the agenda, right? Like uh-huh. it's going to be a frog in boiling water. Like uh-huh. it's it's going to be what's happening now, actually, which they shouldn't, you know. Un- unfortunately, that's kind of how you see it. First, it starts on the border and then it starts with the ice raids and then the ice raids, you know, come into something else and it's slowly and slowly and slowly. Um, and that's my pessimism. <laughs> Um, Well, this is really, really fascinating. Um, Are you going to be continuing this research? I don't know. Um, And the reason I don't know is that everybody I talk to, you know, the other academics mostly and to some extent clergy as, as well, you know, everybody I talk to is so confused still, you know, trying to make sense of how we got to here in the last two years that it's so difficult to imagine where we might be going. <laughs> so I, I, I think I am, you know, frankly inclined at this moment today to say, I'm going to, as an academic, I'm going to have to sit this one out. I'm glad I'm not a journalist in the front mm-hmm. lines. I'm going to sit it out. I'm going to pull back for a couple of years and see what happens. I have to say, I was even reluctant to write this book because, you know, when the people were encouraging me to do it, I said, you know, Already we can see that the conversation is just changing from day to day. And, you know, I don't know by the time the book comes out, who knows. And so with thinking about what religious people are are doing, uh, what farmers are doing, small town people, I do know from – I've, I've been kind of shifting back toward looking more at the religious scene, talking to people uh, – pastors and others, I do think there's an awful lot of interesting, insightful, productive conversation going on now where people are are saying, oh my gosh, you know, what is going on with either the, the White House or some of the very visible evangelical you know, religious leaders who are supportive of the White House. And so at the local level, trying to figure out as best they can, what do we say and what do we do and how can we be hopeful and how can we be true to whatever our faith is. And, and you know, and some of some of that is even, I think, encouraging yeah. uh, with respect to inter-religious, you know, attitudes, attitudes toward Muslims or Hindus, whoever they might be. I was actually just going to say, I mean, you saw a fair number of evangelical churches speak up about family separations. 
mm-hmm. um, evangelical people, I should say, not always whole denominations or churches, but um, maybe that is actually the time the, the where that conversation might happen. Ironically enough, that's also where a lot of the conversations about marriage equality happen too, right? Mm-hmm. That that people were kind of forced into deciding where does our church stand on this, and it turned out people were more open-minded than they they thought they might be. So maybe that's where the congregations will will lead themselves next. That's that's we can hope. That's something we can end on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's what I was going to say. That's a that's a good good hopeful point to end on. All yeah. right. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate sure. it. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Sunbasket has been rated the number one meal kit by leading publications, and it's no wonder why. They offer 18 weekly recipes with options for paleo, gluten-free, Mediterranean, lean and clean, vegan, and more. I can tell you right now, diabetes-friendly, soy-free, family-friendly, dairy-free, all of that stuff is available. Easily cooked dishes like I am looking right now at Speedy Burmese Salmon Salad with Lemongrass and Apple. Fast honey harissa pork chops with spiced chickpeas and chard. Uh, Steak fajita wraps with New Mexican chili salsa. All of this sounds really good. I didn't have enough breakfast, clearly. Spicy Thai-style beef and broccoli with basami rice. I'm... What I like most about them is that they're all really straightforward recipes. Um, you don't have to be a genius in the kitchen to do them, but you will feel something like a genius after putting it all together. And they work with the best farms and suppliers to bring you fresh, organic produce and responsibly raised meats and seafood. Everything is pre-measured and easy to prep. You get a healthy and delicious meal on the table in about 30 minutes. There is something for every healthy journey and every busy lifestyle. Go to sunbasket.com slash friends today to learn more and get $35 off your first order. That is sunbasket.com slash friends for $35. Your first order, sunbasket.com slash friends. If you are a regular listener to the show, you know that we occasionally take some time to respond to the questions that are sent to us at our Gmail address, which is withfriendslikepod at gmail.com. And this week, we are doing just that. Here is the email we received. One thing that I hear a lot is to recognize your privilege and to stand back and allow others to lead. I thought I was understanding the message. As a straight, white, cis, able-bodied woman, the one and only way I can relate to sometimes being the oppressed group is as a woman. I often want men to stop listen, and let women lead and take on roles stereotypically given to men. Recently, I helped organize a diversity-related event in my city with a small group of women who had only known each other for a couple of months. I was very conscious as a white woman to step back and let the few women of color in our group lead and dictate the event. I didn't sit back and do nothing, but a black woman in our group moderated it. She volunteered, and only one panelist was white. On the day of the event, other than setup and check-in, I allowed the women of color in our group to fully lead and stay in the background setting up chairs. So it came as quite a shock when one of the panelists called out the white women in our group for not taking a bigger role and depending on the women of color to do the hard work for this event. Now, I get it. This is not about me. However, I do genuinely want to be the best ally that I can be, and yet I feel like I am receiving mixed messages. Genuinely, I'm struggling to find this balance of shutting up and letting groups that have been silenced and oppressed share their perspectives and lead in society 
while also doing my part as an ally by their side. Finally, I can't help but wonder if my emailing a fellow white woman who shares similar privileges as myself is just perpetuating my inability to understand my own role. Best, Teresa. We get variations of this letter fairly often, and I thought Teresa just put it all really well. And I really admired her for opening up about her specific uh, experience So we invited Teresa to call in, and we're going to have her on right now. Um, Helping me kind of navigate the situation is my friend Betsy Hodges. She is a former mayor of Minneapolis, and she currently does consulting work around racial equity issues. Teresa and Betsy, welcome to the show. Uh, Well, first of all, hello, Teresa. Thank you so much for, um, well, the work that you're doing and for writing in and calling in to ask about the situation that that you faced, and want to just give you a lot of love as as people, um, both of Anna and I have been there, and we want to give you a lot of love. Yes, that is. I, let me weigh in and say that too. I actually really appreciate you having done the work you're talking about. Just basically, everything Betsy said, and being willing to come on the show and talk about it is is. I just am very grateful. For, to you for doing it. So know, know that is from both of us. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Yes. Um, and I think we've all been there as we try and do this work. And the first lesson that I had was the usefulness in separating out realizing whether or not what I was doing was useful and correct from how I felt about how people were responding to what I was doing, particularly people of color and indigenous people. And each of those requires, I think, a different audience and a different place to process and walk through it. So the feelings that we as white people have about um, when people of color are angry with us or giving us feedback and they're not angry or telling us that we have done something wrong or that they don't like something that we're doing, the way racism is set up for any white person who's trying to find our way out of it, we have a ton of feelings about it. And those feelings, the pull is to get approval from people of color and indigenous people to have them reassure us that we're a good white person and that we're doing it right. And that's actually also part of racism. And so to find other fellow traveler white people to walk with or sibling traveler white people to walk with and to turn to about the feelings that come up is really crucial. And I had to do that a lot when I was governing Um, was just to make sure that the feelings I had of wanting that approval of being really either mad or defensive or scared or sad or whatever it was about the feelings that were coming at me from people of color and indigenous people, those white people were incredibly important to process those feelings with because it's also part of racism that people of color, that we expect people of color to do that emotional labor for us. It's also important to have people of color and indigenous people in your life, in our lives, who can give us the feedback about, yes, this is what I think is good or useful in this situation. No, this is what I think could use improvement. People who love us, but who will be honest with us as well. But we have those agreements in place just about decisions that 
that we make um, about how to move forward. Because it's, you know, that relentless pull for approval from people of color at a place where we as white people feel so bad. That's an unfillable need. And we're going to have to fill that up with uh, ourselves and with other white people and with the grief work that needs to happen around the whiteness identity. I think if I can echo a little bit of what Betsy is saying, I've, I, I want to first like validate the fact that it was weird for you to have to, 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 to for this to happen. Like that must have felt you must have had feelings, as we say, in, you know, in therapy. Um, and then I think in a way, like you actually did uh, a totally appropriate thing by turning to another white lady to say, hey, hey. <laughs> you know. Um, how do I deal with this? Because the first thing to do, if, if we're going to do sort of a checklist, would be to turn to a fellow, fellow, maybe white lady, um, maybe a fellow, fellow, um, and just kind of figure out how you feel. And in fact, I think this is, did you listen to the um, ish, to the episode about white fragility? Yes. I think that was in, this is something we talked about in, in that episode, um, where it's important to not, you know, kind of how Betsy talked about to not look to people of color for your merit badge, right? For the for the seal of approval, um, and instead, kind of like gird yourself a little bit with like, okay, I've processed this, you know, and and then maybe go go to some people of color or people who represent the community and and start asking like, what do you think? But I I want to reason I wanted to take your your question. I felt really strongly about it. Is I think that. If you're doing things right in the world, this is going to happen a lot. You know, I think those of us who want to do better, there, it just if we if you're trying to undo racism all the time, some percentage of the time, someone's going to tell you what you're doing isn't working. I think that makes a lot of sense, and that was probably what was hardest for me. It felt kind of like a punch in the gut when you feel like you're doing the right thing. And then all of a sudden it was like called out, nope, no, you're not. And that's, it's almost like the system wants us all to have that experience and- um, And to stop. And to stop, right? Because to stop, oh my God, I did something wrong. I'm not gonna do anything ever again. And one of the biggest gifts Um, that I got learning how to be an ally, which I am still doing, but learning how to be a white person working to eliminate white racism and get to something better is the requirement that we learn how to gracefully uh, not only withstand but accept and metabolize uh, the anger of people of color and indigenous people, that we in those moments get to understand that, of course, uh, lots of people are upset and angry about all the things that you that we would guess. Um, that's been my experience. But that we get to stand in those moments and learn. It's, it's something we have to learn because it's not designed for us to do this with grace. To learn to have that come at us and to um, absorb it with love and understanding and a decision that any feelings we have about what's coming at us 
in that moment, that person, that group, people of color are not the people to process that with. It's that moment where they are letting us see what we need to see and that we get to, with one another as white people, that's the moment that we get to process it together, that we get to have those feelings, show what we need to show with each other. Um, and then also listen to what are we being told? What feedback are we getting? Um, one of the s- s- things that we sacrifice in that fear of that feedback is the realization that human beings are human beings and that not all people of color and indigenous people think the same way and the same things about the same situation. And so we will get different feedback from different folks saying one, you know, one person or set of people saying this is great, another person instead of people saying this is terrible, and that we get to learn judgment um, by working with you know, the people of color that we do have in our lives and working with one another as white people, um, but really being open and listening. But it will, there will never be a time when we will get the approval that we want. Um, and when we get the disapproval, probably not a time where that will feel good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just you're I, I, I'm with you. I have been there. I mean, I've I've been there in that moment on national television. And <laughs> it does not feel good in that moment. And I, you know, and I had to take what was happening to trusted advisors and parse through it and figure out how to move forward. Teresa, do you have any? Is this helpful? It is. It definitely is. I think you know, part of it for me is I'm a bit of a perfectionist. And so, you well, know, I, Betsy and I wouldn't know anything about that. <laughs> <laughs> Neither of us know. Ex- no, go ahead. So yeah, I definitely, of course, I'm always striving to be perfect, um, which is terrible. And it, it it's almost, it, it wasn't like, I, I mean, I guess it was how I felt. And I guess I do have to think less about that, but sort of a disappointment in myself. Um, for not recognizing that or not understanding um, and just thinking, you know, how did I, how did I mess that up so badly, I guess. Um, but that, that, that helps. Um, and well, and that recognizing is one of the that questions I, that is one of the questions that I had. I don't actually know if you screwed it up badly. Um, and from, you know, from, from the way that you've reflected what happened, it's not clear to me if you really did a bad job, if or if you were doing what you were asked to do and guided to do by the people in the environment, I just don't know. And that's that was part of the interest for me in your situation is that it sounded like some some uh, some of the people of color in the environment were like, "Yep, you're doing what we need you to do. Thank you." And others were like, "Why are you letting people of color do all the heavy lifting?" And I don't have an answer for you about whether or not you did the right thing. Um, but I do know that when that stuff is coming at you and all of that, that, you know, asking asking the white ladies is a great thing to do. <laughs> we should, that should be a separate podcast. <laughs> Ask the white ladies. That is, of course, actually the um, unspoken subtitle of a lot of podcasts. But, um, <laughs> but Teresa, yeah, I actually should foreground that. I, I don't think the point of your question is like, did you do the right thing or not? That's not that that to me wasn't my interest. It was it was like, how do we process those moments when when we're trying to do the right thing? And someone tells us someone whose approval, you know, we desire um, tells us, no, 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 you haven't. And and because I, I think one thing we need to get away from is the idea that is there is a definite right and wrong way 
to do things when it comes to racial justice or racial equity. That you, it turns out people of color, people from marginalized communities have a lot of different opinions, you know? And it is somewhat, I would say, that there's an echo of racism thinking that there's always a right way to, to treat these people that are different than ourselves. And so, you know, I wish that Betsy and I could tell you like, oh, definitely you did the right thing or definitely did the right th- wrong thing. But I think I'm hopeful that what we're talking about now is giving you and anyone who's listening tools for whatever situation comes up. Right. I think for me, yeah. it was it was such a great event and and it was very successful. A lot of things um, came through. We were a small group. Um, and I think we were all really proud of ourselves, but I went home that night, the next day, the following day, the day after, I couldn't think about any of the successes. All I could think about was that one comment. So I think I um, placed the success of it on that one comment without seeing the night as a whole. Um, So I think that was sort of why it stuck with me so much. And I just took took it to heart. Mm. Yes, I'm a perfectionist too. I feel your pain. Yeah, I mean, I I totally understand where you're coming from. And it's just those moments are difficult and painful, but um, they get easier over time. And the one thing I would say is please, to anybody listening, don't let that hold you back from continuing. And I would love a rule book myself. I would love one. And I haven't found one. The only thing that I've really figured out for sure is that the starting place for me needs to be love and compassion and looking for the human in all other people. Um, Not to end there, but to start there and that I get a little further. But that includes you. Yeah. I was going to say it includes yourself. I mean, yeah, the love and compassion, you have to be a part of that. And I will echo something that Betsy has said to me personally when we've talked about these things, which is that this is a great opportunity for you. Um, and it's a great opportunity for you to love yourself through your perfectionism, to, to love yourself as an imperfect person trying to do the right thing. And because that is the person that you actually are, and that's the person whose journey you can continue. If you try to continue your journey as a perfect person, that's that's going to be impossible. <laughs> oh, I figured that fun. out a long time ago. <laughs> I bet it sounds like you did. You're doing great. Yeah. Um, and I, I hope, you know, you're going to continue to do stuff with your group. Can we can we hopefully, like, r- you know, wrap things up by knowing that, yes, that you, you guys are doing more? Um, I have to say that I'm not actually a part of that group anymore. <laughs> um, okay. I'm still in touch with almost every single person in that group, um, but it was a very brand new group and things didn't quite pull together. Um, and I, as I'm quite active in in New York City in all sorts of groups, and I was stretching myself a little too thin, so I had to recognize um, where my needs were best suited. But I do still work with people that are in that group. I, I wouldn't even say that the group as a whole is completely um, exists as a group. We kind of all exist separately. Well, I actually think that that messiness of that answer is sort of fitting. And that is it for this week's show. You guys know the drill. Rate and review. Please visit our sponsors. Tell your friends. Tell your enemies. And as a somewhat special closing note this week, I have some right-sizing to do. 
uh, first, I will tell you about some things that I am up to that I often forget to tell people about. Uh, I will be appearing at the Texas Tribune Festival in Austin, Texas on the 28th of September. The festival um, is on either side of that. Of course, a friend of the pod, Rick Wilson, is also going to be at that festival. I think you have to buy tickets for the entire festival. So unless you're like down for that, you probably won't be able to see me, but it's a great festival. It's kind of like South by Southwest without all of the annoying stuff that happens at South by Southwest. So please do consider doing it. And then maybe a little more likely, uh, if you want to see me do stuff, I am going to be part of the KCRW Left, Right, and Center live show tour, mini tour. They are going to be in LA, San Francisco, and New York City this fall. Uh, Next week in LA on the 20th, and then in San Francisco on the 11th of October, and in New York right after the midterms on the 7th. So if you want to see me do stuff live, um, you can see me be the left on left, right, and center. And then I also want to right-size myself by reminding you and me that I cannot do this show by myself. I have two people that help me every week. My producer, Kat Siniak, and my departing intern, Liam McMahon. Liam, you have been a real gift to the show. I apologize for this being the first time your name got mentioned. Thanks to both of you. And I will do a better job of reminding them and me of how important they are. And you know what? You guys are important too. Don't forget it. You're so important. I hope you remember this week to, as always, take care of yourself. If there's anything better than getting a few of your favorite things from McDonald's, it's getting a few of your favorite things from McDonald's for less in the McDonald's app. Mm. Delicious. Order in the McDonald's app today. Right now, only in the app. Enjoy a breakfast sandwich for just $1, like a sausage McMuffin with egg. Offer valid one time per day from 429 to 512 at participating McDonald's. Must opt into rewards. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today.